Please, uh, if you have a Bible and can turn to the bit that was read, you'd find that helpful. We're in um, Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We're going to do the very last bit, which is from verse 5 onwards. And while you're finding the place, let me just say the same introduction that I've, I've said before. Is there not a deep, deep truth that this book touches on? That human beings were made for more than this life, more than things, but for an eternal person-to-person love with the Almighty One. That's what we were made for. And until our hearts find that, our hearts are empty, our hearts are restless, as Augustine said, until they find their rest in you. And let me just say the uh, introductions for those who are new here today. Uh, it, it looks like a love song for human beings. We had it read to us. Is it a love song for human beings? Uh, can it really be that? It, it begins, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And uh, you might say, I thought the Bible was against sex. And apparently the answer is no. And then you might say, isn't this rather an embarrassing or perhaps even a naughty subject to be looking at on a Sunday morning? Uh, And we had uh, last time the reference, rests are like clusters of fruit, and and you think, is this a bit embarrassing? And actually, the Bible's put this here. God's put this in his word because this is something we're to understand as being beautiful. God has put a beauty into our world, and this book of the Bible just tackles that straight head on and says, yes, this beauty is from God. It's to be understood. It's to be um, embraced in the way that God wants it to be embraced. But God has put this uh, beauty of uh, romantic love, marriage, into our world. How is it to be interpreted? Well, the way I've been doing it is to say that there's a a plan here. It's about a, a farm girl and her bloke, but she refers to him as King Solomon, or she sort of alludes to him as King Solomon in the same way that a couple today might say, try and get it the right way around, he's my prince, Prince Harry, and she's my princess, she's my Meghan Markle. It's about human romance, but human romance has always been designed to be a direct expression of the divine love for his people. And I've asked week by week, is it any use? And week by week I've answered, it is hugely useful because it teaches us about the things that our world is confused about. Our world is confused about love and sex and gender. And the Bible says this is the way it is and it's a beautiful thing. The song unashamedly celebrates the unmatched beauty and glory of a covenanted love, that's to say a love which is surrounded by promises and commitments, Uh, And it's heterosexual, sexual love. And in so doing, it points us beyond this visible, fallen, limited world to deep, eternal realities. So that's the uh, introduction. Let me just look back over where we've come. If you've been here through the whole series, you'll perhaps remember we started off with love and longing. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. We went through their courtship. And in the courtship, there was always this sense of timing, that there were some things that were not yet right. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And we went through some issues of distance and loss. Uh, 
he was turned away and then she was worried that she'd, whether she, about their relationship, but it was okay. Then there was something about their marriage and the consummation uh, where he says, uh, I have come into my garden. The garden was locked and hidden, but it's open to him. Uh, then we, they found some problems. They got out of step with each other, but they got back together again. And then the last time we looked at a confirmation and affirmation of their relationship, and in particular the, the uh, emphasis on bodies. And I, uh, I tried to make the case that the body and the self are indivisible and that God's future for his people is the hope of the resurrection through Jesus Christ when we will have new bodies if we belong to him. And today we're going to conclude. So that's where we came from and this is where we're going to. So my plan is, I'll try to make it a little bit memorable. Uh, There's something about leaning on one. There's something about larger than two. And there's something about lasting forever. So those are three L's. So if you fancy trying to remember over lunch what on earth he said this morning, the three L's there. Uh, leaning on one larger than two and lasting forever. And then there were three P's. Uh, the protection of love before, the protection of love afterwards, and a poem unfinished. That's as snappy as I could make it, but three P's at the end. Love being protected before marriage, love being protected after marriage, and the unfinished nature of the poem. Okay, that's what we're going to do. I'll try and get on with it then. So if you look... Chapter 8, verse 5. The friends said, Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? So who is this coming up from the desert? There, so there she is, coming up from the desert. And the, the same sort of question has been asked in 3, verse 6. Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke? And 6, verse 10. Who is this that appears like the dawn? Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession. And it's here in 8 verse 5. Who is this coming up from the desert leaning on her lover? The same question's been asked. And I think it's worth just tracking the, uh, this woman, the woman as she comes up from the desert. She started off being an object of disdain. Chapter 1 verse 6. She was un- unconfident. And she says, don't stare at me. I'm a farm girl. I'm dark. I've been darkened by the sun. Uh, She was an object of disdain. She was an object of anger. That's uh, still 1 verse 6. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. So she was pushed around a bit, it seems. She was disdained and and people got angry with her. Uh, She has been through experiences of being misunderstood and... Uh, abused. They, uh, she, in her dream, we presume this is in her dream, chapter 5, verse 7, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city, and they didn't help me. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak. And it, 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 she says, I've, at least in dream, um, I've, I've felt awful. I've been misunderstood and abused. But she's moved through that. In chapter 6, verse 9, it says, the maidens saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines praised her. And she's moved from being this sort of little, I don't know, shy, misunderstood girl, to being a woman, uh, a married woman, that the queens and the concubines praise her. She's gained 
dignity. And in fact, in 6 verse 10, the, the, the dignity that she's achieved is huge. 6 verse 10, who is this that appear, appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? That's a huge uh, thing to say about her. She's become glorious. Uh, this, if you look at it on the human point of view, the becoming a bride is a glorious thing. And here she's likened to the the cosmos. uh, Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession. And something I learnt this week, which I I hope is uh, accurate, end of chapter 6, verse 13, the friends say, come back, come back, O Shulamite, and the lover says, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as in the days of Mahanaim? Well, I thought Shulamite was simply like saying where she lived, like, you know, live in Ditchling or live in Eastbourne. But uh, I've discovered, and I hope this is correct, that uh, Shulamite is the feminine form of Solomon. So Solomon is the great glorious king, and they're saying, you are Mrs. Solomon. You are the great glorious queen, you know, Solomon-esque, if you like. Uh, So there's a a trajectory that she's gone through. She, the bride, has become glorious in her new relationship. Uh, If you think back to the last wedding that you attended, would it not be true that the bride was glorious? She she walked down the aisle, you thought, wow. And her husband-to-be probably thought, wow and had to be picked up off the floor several times. That's the way this text is going. He's saying there's something here. We have it here on earth, and we see something of it, the glory of the bride. And, of course, if we uh, stand back and think what this is pointing to, the people of God, uh, there's something breathtakingly glorious about the church of God because she is the bride, not because she is what she is herself. She is, you know, by herself, if she'd been left on her own, she would have been, whatever it says, um, obnoxious, forlorn, all on her own. But now she's been brought into this relationship with this great king. She becomes glorious without spot or blemish, a radiant church, a wonderful thing. We had read to us from the book of Revelation about the bride. Um, the bride and the, and the city get conflated to each other. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, breathtakingly glorious. If you're a Christian, if you're one of the people of God, just notice that, that in Christ you are becoming, you will be breathtakingly glorious. It's a knockout thought, isn't it? Breathtakingly glorious. Who is this? Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession. And the answer to that will be the people of God in Jesus Christ. Who is this coming up from the desert? Uh, Now, she was leaning on somebody, wasn't she? Leaning on her lover. I'll just stop on the leaning part. 
she's leaning on her husband. Now, it doesn't tell you whether they're young or old. It doesn't tell you whether they've been bouncing around playing tennis and she's coming back leaning on her lover or whether they've just been to the uh, geriatric clinic and they're both on their zimmers and one's leaning on the other. It doesn't tell you that. Uh, But it's love, isn't it? Whatever age that is, she leans on her lover and that's love. And it invites husbands to make sure that they're leanable husbands, uh, that they're there to be lent on, that they're there to lend strength and able to be the sort of leader of a relationship who can support in a relationship. She's leaning on her husband. Husbands should be leanable. And I think it also teaches us that love doesn't have to be hot passion. It can be true, deep, proper love. And here it is expressed She's leaning on him as they come from Sainsbury's or the desert or wherever it is. And I'm just reminded that that same thought is expressed in relationship to Jesus. Uh, It says, I'm just quoting here from John's Gospel in the old version. It says, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We presume this is John. He says, that's... When we, when we were around the table, Jesus let me lean on him because we were friends. We were close friends. And I could lean on him as we sat around the table. He was leaning on Jesus' bosom. The disciple leant on Jesus. I'm going to say that's a right thing to do. Whether you're male or female, whatever age you are, to be a disciple of Jesus is a right thing to lean on him. And I hope none of the blokes here are so macho and strong and independent that they're above leaning on Jesus. It's the way to be, to lean on him. When I first came to the church as a, as a young man, there was a lady. All the ladies in the church wore sort of strange woolly hats, felt hats, and they all had felt coats. Um, I don't know why they did that, they did. Um, and they were from a, a, a generation, I don't know, they would, they were ladies in their 60s and 70s, and they wasn't good to the young people, the students. And I remember, I think it was Mrs. Lake, Mrs. Lake or Mrs. Laker? No, Ray, Ray doesn't remember. Well, I, anyway, I might have got her name wrong, but I remember her saying to me, she said, young man, Lean on the Lord, young man. And the more you lean, the better he likes it. Which was a very sort of down-to-earth way of putting it, but I have not forgotten that advice. Lean on the Lord. It's the right way to live the Christian life. Leaning on the Lord. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? So point one, leaning on one. Number two, larger than two. Let's go on. So the beloved says, under the apple tree I roused you, there your mother. Now, it says conceived, and that might give you the wrong idea because the word actually means to to arrive in labour. So really, there your mother gave you birth, uh, what should we say, and there she who was in labour had a child, something like that. It's two, two parallels on giving birth. The scene of their togetherness, that, that's the scene of their togetherness under the apple tree. There, your mother 
gave birth to you. So she's saying to him, uh, under the apple tree, let's put an apple tree. Now, what's the, the apple tree? So I, I'll be a little bit speculative. Uh, some of the commentators take this view as well. Um, I wonder whether she means the apple tree is like the family tree. Where your mother was in labour. She's saying our togetherness is linked to the previous generation and maybe the generation before that and maybe the generation before that. In other words, our togetherness is not just the two of us independently who cares about anybody else but we're part of a a tree part of a a, a linkage that goes through generations she's saying that our relationship is in the context of family and if we have children then there will be children and grandchildren and we'll all be connected together it's in the flow of the generations where your mother gave birth to you so put a a baby inside its mummy there. So in other words, the, the Song of Solomon has this rather, I think, lovely, it's not an obtrusive emphasis, but it's there all the time. Romance is not like an elopement where a couple say, forget my mum and dad, forget what they think about this, we're off on our own, we're going to do our own thing and goodbye to them. That's the classic elopement, isn't it? So Tom and Lady Sybil nearly eloped in Downton Abbey, but they were rescued from that. And those of you who watch Downton Abbey will know that they wanted to break with the family, but they were persuaded not to, and it was actually a good thing that they stayed in contact with the family. So this relationship that the the girl and and the man have is not promiscuous it's not random it's fully placed in the context of the generations and connections of family so i'll come back to that in a moment let's just see the next thing that she says she says place me like a seal over your heart and like a seal on your arm so a seal on your heart i think is a secret thing isn't it what you put on your heart so let's put i don't know what a seal looks like so i put a blob Um, there's a seal on your heart and then she says so this is a private thing hidden thing put me like a seal on your arm now i think that must be displayed because if you wear something on your arm everybody can see it can't they so she says those two aspects and uh, here's a thought that uh, i listened to when i was thinking about this this week sexual intimacy is very much private. Inside the bedroom, the door is closed, and if there are kids running around, it's probably locked. Sexual intimacy is very much private. But marriage makes makes it very much public. Being together in the bedroom is private, but, the, but what marriage does is to make it public knowledge who is having sex with who. That's right, isn't it? Because that's what a marriage does. You say, 
You bring your friends, relatives, even tell the government, this is how we intend to live. And you've got those two aspects. You've got the very private, not telling everybody about that, but the fact that we are together is a public statement. And this is how God uh, has ordered society to be. And if you think about it, it's a very wise, balanced, wholesome thing. Because society is built around couples and families, isn't it? And uh, the intimacy and the beauty of that is actually within this, and the privacy of that is within this framework of a very public record. If I put it crudely, those two are having sex with each other, those two are having sex with each other, those two are having sex with each other, those two are having sex with each other. It's written down in a book which the government keeps. And that is the way society is to be ordered, to be stable, to be responsible, to be accountable, to be wholesome for the good of everybody. And I just ponder how far from this our society has got. How very far from this. And uh, without sort of trying to be in any sense political about it, how much pain and suffering and upset would be spared if people lived the way God wanted? That's right, isn't it? How much pain and suffering, heartbreak, disturbance to children would be spared if people were able to live the way God wanted. So that's my second point, that this relationship is larger than two. It isn't just two people doing their own thing. It's set in a a web of family, um, society, and so on. Right. Third thing, lasting forever. Love is, well, there's some love is here, aren't there? Love is, verse 6, as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. The word is hard, hard as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. The translation on the... I'm going to go with the translation in the margin, which, or the footnote, which says the flame of Yah, which is a contraction for the name of the Lord. Uh, So it's a flame of the Lord. Waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. Let me just do that translation again a little bit more clunkily. Strong as death is love, hard as the grave is jealousy, it flashes a flashes of fire, the flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, floods not drown it. Hmm. These very strong statements about this thing called love. I keep on, little songs keep on copping into my head as I say that. It's like a crazy little thing called love. And um, what's the Johnny Cash one about? uh, Burn, burn, burn. Ring of fire. You see how our human uh, experience just taps in on the same level as as this bit of the Bible, doesn't it? if you, think, if you think of another one, just sing it out while I, while I carry on. Let's just think about the flame. 
the flame of the Lord. Uh, and I just follow the idea of uh, one of the times the Lord appeared in flame was at the burning bush, wasn't it? When Moses approached and there was a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't burned up, it just kept burning, didn't, wasn't consumed. And Moses approached and the Lord made his presence in that. And he said, you know, hold on, Moses, take your sandals off your feet, you're on holy ground, because the Lord is a consuming fire. And I think about water and floods, perhaps the readers would have thought of the Red Sea, when the waters were parted to let the Israelites through, and then when the Egyptians came to follow them and grab them, the water came back and flooded them. as a mighty act of God's power. And if you might like to link it that way, you say, this is love has something of this quality of burning power, of unquenchability, a, a trueness of love. I know there are different sort of, sort of flippant love and passing love, but there's something about love in its deepest, truest, purest form which many rivers cannot quench. Uh, it can't be drowned. Something really powerful about this, hmm, what do we call it? It's not just an emotion, is it? But this thing that all human beings know something of, don't we? We all know something of love. And the Bible points us to the originator of love, the source of love, the God of whom the New Testament said God is love. That's part of, it's not the whole of, it's part of his essence, his essential character, that he is love. And you get statements like this, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. His mercies never come to an end. Something unending, unquenchable about the love of the Lord. This is his steadfast love, his chesed in, in Hebrew love. Something strong, unbreakable. The steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. Uh, nothing, says the Apostle Paul, can separate us let me read it to get it right. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes and says, get your priorities right. 
there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. Leaning on one. I can't remember. What was the next one? Something more than two. And last forever. Okay, we've gone to the letter P. Protection of love before. Uh, I'm going to come back to ver- a bit of verse 7 in a minute. Um, the friends, we have a young sister whose breasts are not yet grown. What should we do for our sister for the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers or battlements of silver. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. And then the, the grown woman, the wife, says, I am a wall. My breasts are, I'm going to say, as as towers. Uh, thus I've become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. So the little unmarried sister, first of all. The importance of timing. Uh, we want, when she is married, for that to mean something, and we don't want to get it mixed up with how she lives before. So the importance of the context. Don't stir up love until the right time. And until the day she's spoken for, what shall we do? Well, we're going to protect her. Friends are saying, it's the friends, a social group, they're going to protect her from sex outside the right time and place. And they give you a little illustration of it. This is the opposite of today's culture, isn't it? Uh, Let's see, what have we got here? Um, If she's a wall, we will build silver towers and we'll get on the towers and we will shoo away anybody else who comes near. That's what the friends are doing, yes? A wall protected with silver towers. Click, anything happened? Uh, Or, if she's a door... We will protect her with panels of cedar. So we'll put panels of cedar to protect her. And here, are, here is society, here are the friends, here are the peer group helping this woman to, be, um, to not act as if she's married until she's married. So that puts a, that puts a, a, what's the word? a duty on the friends which most of us really, isn't it? Friends and family to help this young woman to not behave as if she's married until she is married. And I say, how our, our, our crazy world does the exact opposite, doesn't it, nowadays? Is it, our crazy world tries to tell people who save themselves to marriage that they're foolish, that they're missing out, makes fun of such people. How wrong, how cruel, how very, very unhelpful. Um, Well, Christian societies, Christian peer groups have an ability to help, help one another in this. And of course it also shows us that the value that God puts on an exclusive love. Uh, When we're married it means something because this is special. A value for one special person in an articulated commitment. So articulated, I mean, they say in words what their commitment is. That's what you do when you get married. And that commitment is made in public. And this is helped by friends and not hindered. And again, I think this is why at a wedding you invite your friends. So that they can be part of supporting the marriage. And in one place, let me just say it now, 
I'll probably end up saying it again. If people fail in this and come to the Lord, he is so full of forgiveness. wouldn't want anybody to go away thinking, you know, I've made mistakes in this, I've failed in this, and that's me done, finished. Absolutely not. The Lord is merciful. The Lord understands. And I'm reminded of how he spoke to the woman at the well. You remember? The woman who had five husbands. Five men. And uh, the man she had at the moment wasn't her man. wasn't her husband. And how tenderly the Lord Jesus dealt with her. When he said, go and fetch your husband. And she said, well, I haven't got a husband. And he said, you're absolutely right. You've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. He didn't sort of rub her nose in it. He didn't make her feel any more embarrassed than she needed to be. He just knew and understood and, and he forgave her. And I just want to make that point before I go on. Protection before marriage. Protection of love after marriage. So this is the woman speaking in verse 10. I am a wall and I, I want to change the like to as. My breasts are as towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. So... Uh, I think the statement is not a statement of geometry, but strategy. That's the security of our marriage. Inside the walls is contentment, shalom, peace, well-being inside this marriage relationship. And part of the military protection is me, says the woman. I am a wall. My breasts are as towers. And I think what she's saying is this. I myself provide, provide defence for this relationship. My womanly attractiveness is part of that defence against invaders. And I am the provider then, um, not only of security, but contentment within this relationship. And here is the woman, the provider of comfort, and the provider of peace into our relationship. There's a particular role for the woman to be, as you might say, a peacemaker rather than a peacebreaker, um, providing uh, with her womanly attractiveness and her femininity to provide a defence in that relationship. Protection after marriage. She goes on to say Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. Um, my understanding is that uh, well, Baal means Lord and Hamon means of a crowd. Um, uh, I don't know whether it was actually a place or whether she's making a little bit of a comment here. Uh, Solomon, uh, he was, uh, Baal can mean husband actually as well. Uh, husband of a, he had a crowd. How many wives and things did he have? Oh, let's just see. Uh, he had a vineyard. Let's put, do the vineyard first. And he had multiple wives. Do you know how many he had? So I hear somebody something saying 700. Uh, 700 and 300. I don't know which way round it was. It's 700 wives and 300 concubines or the other way round. Do you know, I'm sure he must have had difficulty remembering all their names, don't you think? A thousand sexual partners... Um, 
And she comments about this. She's not approving of this. You'll get the point in a moment. Solomon had a vineyard in uh, Lord of a Crowd. He let out his vineyard to tenants. And each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. So this is a big, you know, it's almost like big business, isn't it? It's all to do with money. Um, But she says, Solomon, King Solomon, I mean, my... My bloke is a little bit like King Solomon, but not entirely like King Solomon. Uh, And in this regard, we're very different in this particular respect because in our relationship, there is just one king and one one wife. It's just one-to-one. Vineyards, not multiple tenants, just one. My own vineyard is mine to give. Uh, the thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon. You can keep them. And the two hundred for those who tend its fruit, and they can keep their money. But for me, it's just me and you. Yeah? Uh, we're, we're, it's, it's an exclusive relationship. One to one. And she says um, to her husband, I offer myself to you and only to you. And I know that you have me you don't have anyone else and that's how it is and I'm absolutely happy with that situation and King Solomon can keep his thousand whatever they are 700 of those and 300 of those he can keep that silly king silly man fancy, doing, fancy living that sort of way do you think that gives him any real satisfaction is there any real beauty in that absolutely not folly I'm far better off she says, as a farm girl with one husband who's faithful to me than being married to a king and I'm just 0.01% of his attraction. And I'm not for sale, she says. I'm not for sale. Have you ever thought about that? That um, a marriage is something you can't buy. That's right, isn't it? If you're a, a multi-millionaire, let's suppose you were... What's his name? Jeff Bezos, is it? Or um, who's the chap who does Tesla? Elon Musk. Elon Musk. You've got a load of money. You've got a ton of money. Do you think on all the shelves of all the supermarkets in the world, or the Harrods, you can go and buy a wife? I suppose in a way you could. But will she love you? Will she be a wife, a real wife? You can't buy her. You can't buy, can you? Not every, in, in the kingdom of God, not everybody has a wife or a husband. The Apostle Paul didn't have a, a, a wife. He says, actually, in, in the, the way the kingdom operates at this particular time, the real advantage is in being single. So if you're a single person, please don't think that you're on the wrong end of things. But if you are married, indeed, if you... well. You have something that money cannot buy. Isn't that right? Money cannot buy this relationship, this love. You can't buy it and you can't put a price on it. End of verse 7 says, If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And I think what he's saying is you, you can't buy love. The song is, money can't buy me love, isn't it? Nobody, uh, not a flicker of recognition when I said that. That's a Beatles song. (laughs) 
can buy me love. Okay. And I, I just stopped to say, how blessed to love and how blessed to be loved. Money can't buy that. Protection after. So we get to the, to the end of this uh, song. The lover says, you who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. And he's going to say, do you not agree with me on this? And I presume the friends are going to say amen or yes or way to go or something like that, depending on their culture. So he says, will you not agree? And I'm going to ask you, do you not agree with this? Do you, do you not think that what we've looked at is, is brilliant and wonderful and beautiful? It's a rather special book, this. There's a, there's a, uh, it gives us a sort of insight into uh, a beauty and a wonder that comes direct from heaven into our world uh, most, in a most surprising way. Now, what does she say to him? Verse 14. Now, in our translation, it says, Come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the spice-laden mountains, or spice mountains. Well, the, I looked at the translation, and it, although it, the translation says come, in fact, the word, every time it's used, means go. So she's saying, off you go. That's what I think she's saying. So let's try this on for size. The, the poem ends up saying, we're together. We have a security in our relationship. Now, off you go. You can go and you know, do the shopping, or you can go and uh, um, go to work, or you can go on your business trip, or whatever it is. You, 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 you toddle off and do that, because I know that you'll come back. You know, I'm not saying you've got to stay here forever and ever. We can have a life. Uh, off you pop, but I know you'll come back. Uh, if the stag goes off, you go. Our relationship continues, implies if you go away, it won't be long before you come back. And it's, that's where it ends. Uh, it's sort of saying, here we are. Um, life continues, but I know... There's going to be a sort of a return. I know that mm, um, you know, we haven't reached the end yet. And I will close with this quote from one of the commentaries that I read, which I think sums it up really well. This longing is intended to remind us all of a love greater than any human love. A love for which marriage provides the best picture that the world affords. This jealous love of God for his people has triumphed over death and Sheol, that's the grave, through the cross and now invites his bride into his eternal embrace to embark on a journey together that stretches beyond our own deaths, beyond the grave, and onwards and upwards forever. Hmm. We've come to an end. We're going to sing a song together. We're going to sing 803.
803 is a song which celebrates love. It doesn't have a huge amount of content in it. I think there's some of the things that we've sung and said already provide the content. But this just talks about love. It's purity, the way the love of God weeps for the shame I know and pays the debt I owe. This love stills my restlessness, fills my emptiness, shows me holiness. This love springs from eternity and streams through history and is a fountain of life to me. And we honour the Saviour, Jesus Christ, as the one through whom this love comes. When we sing it, it goes very quickly. Once we've sung it, you think, so I suggest, I'm going to look at you, if you're still singing, we might sing it all over again and do it twice, just to get our money's worth from it. Yeah, we'll play the whole thing just to, just to uh, get, give us the, the tune.